Dreamers, and welcome back to the show. I want to thank you so much for dropping in to listen to our 200th episode. Yes, this is quite a milestone, and I never really imagined that we would be doing 200 of these. When we got to episode 100, I went for a pretty big California case. That was Betty Broderick. It turned out to be episodes 100 and 101. I wanted to do something people had been asking to hear about, and it was kind of a big deal with lots of media attention at the time that that happened, and it still does get a lot of attention. So I thought about what I wanted to do for this episode. We've been doing so many in-depth stories lately. We just finished up with pyromaniac John Orr. We did the series on serial killer Anthony Garcia before that. We did the Kissel Brothers. It's been a lot of multi-parters. I've also been doing more cases outside of California, which I enjoy doing a lot. I hope you all like that too. Wedged in between serial killer and serial arsonist, I gave you a funny little story about a couple of bakery terrorists named Amy and Sammy Buzaglo. And that story had a little bit of a California connection, but not too much. So for episode 200, I thought, I could try to do something that was totally out of the state of California, but at the same time, I wanted to find something that was a little bit not so serious. I think I found the right story, but it's not from California. I figured, what the heck, why not? So for episode 200, I'm going to share with you a story that has absolutely nothing to do with the state of California, and it is a very dim-witted crime. You are listening to California Dreaming, and this is a vacation series episode to celebrate number 200, the tale of the invisibility juice. April 19th. I looked up the date to check a list of things that took place on that day in history. The world's oldest marathon had its first run in Boston, Massachusetts on that date in 1897. 118 CIA-trained Cuban exiles were killed in the Bay of Pigs in 1961. The Simpsons first appeared on the Tracy Ullman Show in 1987. The Central Park Five were arrested and eventually provided false confessions to the beating and rape of a jogger named Trish Mealy in 1989. The Branch Davidian religious cult compound in Waco, Texas was raided by the federal government, the FBI, the ATF, State of Texas law enforcement, and the United States military in 1993. And one of the most significant acts of domestic terrorism carried out in recent memory also happened on this date, April 19th, two years after the siege in Waco, Texas and that was the bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Building in Oklahoma City. I talked about this particular case quite some time back in episode 161, entitled The Making of a Homegrown Terrorist, which discussed a rampage carried out by a man named Sean Nelson, who stole a tank from a military base in San Diego back in May of 1995. Nelson had apparently been somewhat impressed with the bombing in Oklahoma, the month prior. On April 19, 1995, at 9.02 a.m., 
The deadliest act of homegrown terrorism was carried out by Timothy McVeigh, along with his accomplice, Terry Nichols. The blast took 165 lives, including 19 children. I did read that there was a body part that was never identified, so it could have either belonged to one of the 168 victims or possibly a 169th victim who has never been identified. More than 700 people were injured, and the blast sheared off the entire front side of the federal building. It destroyed dozens of vehicles and either damaged or destroyed 300 other structures. According to the FBI's website, what ensued was one of the largest and most complex cases the FBI had ever investigated. Local radio stations began theorizing that this event may have been some sort of natural gas explosion. FBI agents who were dispatched to the area could tell almost right away, based on the level of destruction, the magnitude of the damage, and how widespread it had been, that this was no natural gas leak. This was a very, very substantial bomb event. When agents began arriving at the scene within 10 to 15 minutes of the blast, they weren't able to get any closer than two to three blocks away because of all the debris that was caused. This wasn't a natural gas explosion. FBI agents arrived only to see the entire north facade of the building having been blown completely off, almost clear across to the south side. It looked like a war was taking place in Oklahoma City. It was an entanglement of concrete, twisted metal, steel beams, and bodies. The agents knew the moment that they got there that this was no ordinary bomb. In the moments after the blast, the sounds that were heard next were fire alarms, car alarms, and soon there were sirens. The police, paramedics, and firefighters were rushing to the scene. And then there were the sounds of the people, people crying, people calling out for help, people who were trapped and hurt. And soon, for some reason, there was just silence. FBI Special Agent Barry Black was at an Air Force base seven miles or 11 kilometers away from the federal building, staking out the military base, looking for a fugitive wanted for some sort of fraud case involving stocks. As they waited, the sound of the bomb going off hit them as they were sitting in their car, he and his partner. They looked around and saw anybody who was out and about taking cover because it was so powerful and intense. Later on, it was reported that the explosion registered a magnitude 3.2 on the Richter scale. When they looked towards the direction of the blast, they could see smoke billowing towards the sky. They knew they needed to save the arrest of their white-collar fugitive for another time. It was soon clear that the FBI would be in charge of the investigation into this bombing. It appeared almost immediately that this was an act of terrorism. They would soon learn that it was an act of domestic terrorism. As I mentioned a moment ago, tank hijacker Sean Nelson had been inspired to commandeer his tank and drive it through the streets and neighborhoods of San Diego by the events perpetrated by McVeigh and Nichols in Oklahoma City. While McVeigh, the mastermind of the bombing, had an inspiration of his own, even carrying out his attack on the second anniversary of that inspiration, the raid and ensuing 51-day standoff between the Branch Davidian cult members and the federal government, law enforcement, and military 
at what is commonly referred to as the Waco Siege. There is even a picture of McVeigh leaning on the hood of his car, handing out anti-government flyers in Waco, Texas, at some point during the siege. McVeigh had developed a hatred for the government. He picked that federal building specifically because he knew many, many federal employees worked there. When I read up on the things that led to what McVeigh would eventually do, there really didn't seem to be any one particular thing that caused him to decide that the United States was his enemy. Born April 23, 1968, he grew up in New York. He says that he was the target of bullying throughout his time in school. He was shy and withdrawn and only grew more so as he got older. He seemed to be socially awkward, and when it came to girlfriends, he didn't really know how to go about talking to or interacting with them. He developed an interest in computers and was said to have hacked into a government system using a Commodore 64, a computer introduced in the United States in 1982, which at the time was outselling computers manufactured by IBM, Apple, and Atari. Even though McVeigh was named the most promising computer programmer of his senior class in high school, and he managed to graduate with his class in 1986, he earned mostly pretty poor grades. McVeigh's grandpa was maybe a gun collector or a gun enthusiast of some sort, and soon McVeigh himself developed an interest in firearms also. He became well-versed when it came to gun ownership rights in the United States, and he aspired to one day own his own gun shop. He was known to have brought guns with him to school to show off to his friends. He joined the National Rifle Association, and he subscribed to mercenary publications like Soldier of Fortune. His love for guns had evolved into a full-blown obsession And eventually he ended up dropping out of college in the middle of his very first semester. He went to go work for an armored car company as an armed guard for a minute. But even his co-workers noticed how overly preoccupied McVeigh was with firearms. Two years after high school, McVeigh enlisted in the United States Army. Most of his free time was spent reading up on firearms, explosives, and sniper strategies. He had gotten into a little bit of trouble while in the Army for buying a White Power t-shirt at a KKK rally where they were protesting black service members who were sporting Black Power t-shirts on military property. When he became a sergeant, he was known to have treated his black subordinates poorly, giving them the work that nobody else wanted to do, and he regularly used racial epithets. McVeigh wanted to join the Special Forces Unit of the United States Army, also known as the Green Berets, but two days into the 21-day selection process, he quit. He was apparently ordered to march indefinitely without direction or destination, and this made him upset. He was discharged from the Army after two years. From there, McVeigh started writing complainy letters to newspapers and to state representatives. 
He complained about taxes. He complained about a woman who was arrested for carrying pepper spray. He held a number of dead-end jobs. There were times when he didn't really have a place to live. He was kind of a drifter. And if there was ever a time he attempted to make any sort of romantic advances towards a woman, he was almost always resoundingly rejected. He also began to feel as though he was a disappointment to his family and brought nothing to them but pain and heartache. He became addicted to gambling. He fell heavily into debt. And if things weren't already bad enough for the downtrodden McVeigh, he received a letter from the government that he was overpaid a little more than $1,000 while he was in the army and they were demanding repayment. He had also come to believe that while he was in the army, he had been implanted with some sort of microchip so they could track him. He believed this microchip was in his butt. So it leads us to believe perhaps he was struggling with some mental health problems. He became estranged from his family after the Waco siege. McVeigh's hatred for the government from then on only intensified. He began traveling to gun shows to pass out more anti-government literature. He slowly made his way from the Midwest through the Western states. And the further west he got, the more he found people agreed with his anti-government sentiments. That is until he got to what he referred to as the People's Socialist Republic of California. McVeigh eventually drifted his way back east to Michigan, where he reconnected with a former roommate of his named Terry Nichols. And it was Nichols and his brother who showed McVeigh how to build bombs out of common household chemicals. Waco was the event that pushed McVeigh over the edge to a point where he felt like he needed to retaliate against the federal government as he began to think that Waco was like this huge government conspiracy slash cover-up. Ironically, McVeigh was particularly put off by the use of CS gas or tear gas, it's uh, riot control gases, that were used against women and children in Waco. Yet, when he perpetrated his own act of terrorism, among his victims were dozens of women and children. Anyway, as time wore on in the months following Waco, McVeigh and Nichols became more and more radicalized. They started planning their attack and they began purchasing large amounts of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, which when misused is explosive. Following the bombing, it didn't take very long to track McVeigh down because he really didn't seem to have taking too many steps to cover his tracks. The bomb was inside a yellow rider moving truck. The rider truck was traced back to a rental place in Junction City, Kansas. The owner of the rental agency helped develop a composite sketch of McVeigh as being the one who rented it, and it did look a lot like him. Shortly thereafter, the owner of a motel in Junction City identified the man in the composite sketch as Timothy McVeigh, who had just been a guest at his motel. McVeigh was arrested later the same day as the attack, I believe it was only 90 minutes later, by an Oklahoma state trooper, but it wasn't for the bombing. The trooper had pulled McVeigh over for having a missing license plate on the car that he was driving. And when he went to ask for his driver's license, the trooper noticed that he was carrying a concealed weapon and he took him into custody for that. 
Like I said, it had only been 90 minutes since the bombing when he was arrested. So as soon as the FBI got his name from the motel and ran a check, they saw that he was already in custody on those unrelated charges over at the Noble County Jail in Perry, Oklahoma. Nichols was linked to McVeigh because he used his Michigan address when he checked in at the motel. Four months after the bombing, McVeigh and Nichols were charged with 11 crimes, including eight counts of first-degree murder for the eight federal law enforcement officers that were killed in the building. McVeigh was found guilty on all charges in June of 1987. He opted to drop all of his appeals after the first automatic one had been denied, and he was put to death by lethal injection on June 11, 2001, at the federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. Terry Nichols was found guilty of conspiracy and eight counts of manslaughter in December of 1997. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Nichols would actually be tried at both the federal and state levels because the first conviction in federal court, the jury was deadlocked on the death penalty. So he was charged at the state level, tried and convicted, but that jury was also deadlocked on the death penalty. So he was given a life sentence. Nichols is currently being housed at the U.S. Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility in Florence, Colorado, where he resides on what's known as Bombers Row. Some of his neighbors are the guy who bombed the World Trade Center in Manhattan, New York back in 1993, the guy who committed a series of bombings, including the one at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Unabomber. The reason why I brought up April 19th and specifically discussed the events in Oklahoma City on that date in 1995 is because there was something else, far less tragic, far less remarkable, but somewhat interesting, yet ridiculous, happening 1,100 miles or 1,770 kilometers away in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But let's back up a little bit and rewind to the topic of children's science experiments. Remember when you would take a white crayon and write on white paper, then if you used watercolors to paint over the paper, the message written in crayon would magically appear? Then some years later, there were those magic diaries you could get at like Toys R Us and whatnot. I remember getting my daughter a diary that you could write using an invisible pen, a visible ink pen that had a UV light. So you could see what you were writing, but once the UV light was off of it, the page would look blank. And then if you turn the light back on it, you could see what your writing was. So it was kind of like this magical ink. Well, there is a do-it-yourself invisible ink that you could experiment with kids either at home or at school using lemon juice. Some of you may have heard that lemon juice can be used as invisible ink. Some of you may have tried it when you were young or with your own kids, but it's kind of a fun way to leave a secret message using this pretty simple trick. However, the experiment involves using a heat source like a candle 
or a lighter or a 100 watt bulb that gets pretty hot. So it does require adult supervision. All you need is the juice from half of a lemon, a small container or a bowl to squeeze the lemon juice into, a half teaspoon of water, cotton swabs, paper, and a heat source. So you take the lemon and you squeeze its juice into the container. You don't have to worry about scooping out any of the seeds if they happen to fall in. Then you add the half teaspoon of water, stir it up, you take the cotton swab, you dip it into the lemon and water mix, and you use it to write a message on a piece of paper. Then you let it dry. In order to decode the message, once it's dry, you expose that piece of paper to the heat source from the back. You have to kind of move it around side to side so the paper doesn't catch on fire. It's best to use a candle that comes in a jar so you have some distance between the paper and the flame. And soon your message will appear on the paper in kind of a brownish color. And voila, you've used Invisibility Ink. Apparently, if you look this experiment up, there's some wrong information out there as to how this actually works. Some websites will tell you that the reason the lemon juice turns brown is because of oxidation, which is a chemical reaction that happens when a compound releases carbon. And this happens here when the heat source breaks the bonds holding the carbon, in this case, the lemon juice, together. But this isn't exactly what happens here in this experiment. The lemon juice contains ascorbic acid, which will eventually turn brown if you leave it in the open air. The heat simply accelerates the degradation process of the ascorbic acid, causing it to brown and appear on the paper. As adults, we know that there is a perfectly logical, scientific reason why the lemon juice will turn brown and reveal whatever secret message that was written on the paper. And it's a relatively fun and easy activity to do with kids. I taught preschool for many years and I had a number of simple quote-unquote science activities that I did with them. Though I didn't do this one because it was preschool and nobody could read or write. And it involved a heat source, a candle or a lighter or whatever. And I'm not trying to help bring up any future pillow pyros either. Whatever the case, it's simple and for young kids who are usually pretty easy to impress with stuff like this, it's worth trying one or two times as a part of the lesson plan, but that's it. Other than wasting a lemon, a Q-tip, the piece of paper, and 10 minutes of your life that you're never going to get back, there's not much else to be said about this particular grade school level activity. And also, as adults, we know that this is not really anything magical. It's not invisible ink. It's not even ink. It's simply the discoloration caused by the degradation of ascorbic acid. But back more than a quarter century ago, which is only the 90s, but when you think about 1995 being more than a quarter century ago, it has you realizing you've made quite a few laps around the sun, am I right? So back in 1995, there was this guy. He wasn't really all that young at the time. When I first heard this story, I thought maybe he was young, based on nothing more than the details of what this guy actually did. There aren't very many in-depth articles about him, honestly, because I don't think that there is very much about him that's all that in-depth. 
if I'm being honest. But eventually I found out at that time, back in April of 1995, this man was actually 44 years old. And his name, and for some reason I really like his name, his name was MacArthur Wheeler. And though you may not have ever heard of him or this story, but he can easily go down as one of the dim wittiest of criminals of all time. He just so happened to pull this crime off on one of the most tragic days in U.S. history. The day the deadliest act of terrorism before 9-11 and still the deadliest act of domestic terrorism ever carried out on American soil. April 19, 1995, the day that Timothy McVeigh detonated a bomb that killed 168 innocent people. On that day, MacArthur Wheeler was perpetrating his own federal crime. Twice, actually. He committed two crimes during the course of that morning when all of our attention was on Oklahoma City. I clearly remember walking into my house from work that day, sitting down and staring at the images of what was left of the Alfred P. Murrah building. There was little to no chance that any of us outside of Pittsburgh were ever going to hear about Wheeler's crimes. That is until the advent of the internet, where his infamy would live on forever, and we are ever so thankful for that. Unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot out there about Wheeler, like what became of him or where he might be today. I searched Pennsylvania's Department of Corrections inmate locator and got no results, so if he is in jail somewhere, it's not there. So what is it that good old MacArthur Wheeler did? Well, I did say it was a federal crime, so you know it's pretty serious. I just said it wasn't nearly as serious, deadly, or tragic as the events that overshadowed it that day, but it was serious in its own right. That morning, Wheeler robbed not one, but two Pittsburgh-area banks. He was armed with a handgun, and it was pretty brazen, on a bright, beautiful, crystal-clear spring morning. In broad daylight, he held up the tellers using his handgun. He threatened them and demanded they hand over whatever money they had in their drawer. Of course, the whole thing is terrifying, not just for the teller, but everyone in the bank which was full of customers, along with other employees. But the odd thing was, the guy made no real attempt to conceal his identity. He didn't have on any sort of mask covering his face, no baseball cap, no sunglasses, nothing a bandit might use so he wouldn't be so easily identified, no disguise of any sort. And this is all being captured on the bank's numerous surveillance cameras also. And he not only did it once, later on that same morning, he did it again, doing the exact same thing. He held up a second teller at gunpoint, demanding money, his face in full view for everyone in the bank and the cameras to see and identify. We haven't covered too many bank robberies over the last four years that we've been doing this show. There's been a couple, but... There's usually a disguise or a mask involved, at least a baseball cap or something, but nope, not MacArthur Wheeler. So, what's his deal? Was he a guy who had deluded himself into thinking that he could just get away with such a brazen robbery? 
I mean, bank robberies are the jurisdiction of the FBI, so the investigation is going to be taken pretty seriously. So what, was he some sort of technological whiz who would be able to scramble or jam the surveillance system like some kind of Ocean's Eleven scheme? Or perhaps he was suffering from some sort of mental or emotional breakdown that caused him to do something so irrational? Could he have simply been that arrogant and self-assured that he just assumed he was going to get away with these robberies? Well, dreamers, I wish it were that interesting. We might actually have more to talk about here if it was. But no, MacArthur Wheeler wasn't some sort of criminal mastermind. He wasn't a tech whiz or a computer hack. He doesn't strike me as being particularly bold or confident or even criminally insane. And he doesn't exactly strike me as one that would be recruited for any sort of Ocean's Eleven-style heist. MacArthur Wheeler is nothing more than a very short, very pudgy, very middle-aged guy that just seems to have gone through life in a perpetual state of unawareness. In fact, Wheeler's actions defied logic so profoundly he actually spawned a social psychological cognitive bias study on the concept of illusional superiority. When a person grossly overestimates their own abilities and qualities. What Wheeler attempted to pull off when he robbed those banks was so inept it actually caught the attention of David Dunning, a social psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Michigan and Cornell University, and Justin Kruger, a social psychology professor at New York University's Stern School of Business. And they gave Wheeler's cognitive incompetence a psychological label. I'll come back to that. Let me finish telling you what MacArthur Wheeler did that day when he robbed two banks in Pittsburgh. We know, and by we I mean you and I, dreamers, we know that across time we've seen our fair share of hapless, bumbling criminals. One of my favorite true TV shows that aired for six glorious seasons was The Smoking Gun Presents, World's Dumbest Criminals, I watched anything that they produced. Dumbest outlaws, dumbest partiers, dumbest daredevils, dumbest shoppers, dumbest animal encounters, and my favorite, I want to say, was dumbest inventions. I love them all. And amongst these dumb criminals, we've seen some perpetrators attempt to disguise themselves in some pretty inventive ways. And I found us some examples to giggle at. There were the Marker Bandits, a pair of drunken burglars in Iowa who wanted to break into an apartment in 2009. They didn't have any disguises, but they did have a Sharpie, so they marked up their faces. One of them kind of marked up his face, and it looked like sort of a Catwoman mask, and the other guy gave himself a full-on beard. They were pulled over a short time later, their faces still had the Sharpie all over it. Then there was a guy who decided to make use of maybe his last year's Halloween costume 
and he attempted to rob a San Diego area 7-Eleven dressed up as Gumby. Well, as it turned out, he actually failed at carrying out the robbery. So was getting away from his attempt going to be any more successful? That would also be a no. Considering the be on the lookout that went over the police radios was for a person dressed in a Gumby costume. And because there weren't all that many people out and about that day wandering around San Diego dressed as Gumby, he was relatively easy to spot and apprehend. You might be wondering why this robbery turned out to be a fail. Well, it's because when Gumby wandered in, the clerk actually thought the guy was pulling a prank and told him that ain't nobody got time for this. And he laughed in Gumby's face and told him to go home. It was so comically annoying that the clerk couldn't even be bothered to dial 911 to even report the robbery, probably thinking that he was going to look like the stupid one in this whole scenario. But the clerk did up telling his boss what happened a couple minutes later, and the boss was the one who contacted law enforcement. And to add yet another layer of humor to all of this, the clerk had no idea who or what Gumby was and described the disguise as a green SpongeBob SquarePants. And then there was this guy who wore a pair of underwear over his head as a disguise when attempting his robbery. Now, there was one specific case that I was looking for because he not only had these underwear on his head, but he was also wearing a mini dress with a really beautiful floral print, some white sneakers, and there was a black trash bag tied around his body. The article I found on this guy didn't mention where the robbery took place, so I went to search man used underwear disguise in robbery. And there happened to be more results than I thought there would be. My guy was like the fourth or fifth result. He was out of Dallas, Texas. This apparently was also a thing that happened in Missouri, Pennsylvania, Idaho, Tennessee, North Bay, Ontario, Canada, China, and of course, not one to ever be left out, good old Florida man, which not only had at least a couple of underwear disguised robbers, but also an array of crimes involving underwear that were used and abused in a variety of ways in several places in Florida. But anyway, my guy in Dallas with the mini dress and trash bag got away with $200. He robbed another customer on his way out. And because of a wardrobe malfunction, his mini dress had rode up and witnesses were able to report that the only underwear the guy had on was the pair on his head. Then there was a guy who robbed a Circle K convenience store in Little River, South Carolina, with a plastic bag over his head. Now, of course, one of our first thoughts might be that that's pretty dumb, considering he could possibly suffocate since it's quite difficult to breathe with the plastic bag over one's head. Not that any of us would necessarily have first-hand knowledge of that. I mean, not only is there typically a warning printed on the plastic bags, something along the lines of avoid suffocation, keep this plastic bag away from babies and children, do not use near cribs, beds, carriages, or playpens, this bag is not a toy, yada, yada, yada. But surprisingly... 
this isn't the stupidest thing about this particular robber. The bag he used wasn't one of those really thin, translucent, semi-transparent white grocery bags. It was a completely see-through clear plastic bag. The guy also apparently had a plastic bag over his hand, which was also clear, and he pointed it at the clerk as if he had a gun in his hand when actually all he had was a finger gun. I read another report at some point that he had his hand inside of his shirt, but it doesn't seem as though this guy had any sort of weapon at all. But the clerk did comply with his demands for money nonetheless. The plastic bag bandit was eventually apprehended and subsequently sentenced to 15 years in prison. So when I saw this guy had been captured and sent to prison, I went back to check and see if Dallas underwear guy was ever apprehended. And I couldn't find out if he was ever captured or not, because if you search underwear bandit in Texas, it takes you to a whole other guy who stole 130 pairs of underwear from a Dallas Victoria's Secret. So as far as I know, the underwear bandit of Dallas is still at large. And where are my ladies at? Are you feeling a little bit left out? Well, you'll be glad to know that there's at least one woman up in Boston, Massachusetts, who used a pretty lazy disguise of her own when committing her crime. She sharpied a mustache onto her face and robbed a Webster First Federal Credit Union in December of 2016. And not only did she draw on her own disguise, she was only armed with a threatening note. She handed that over to the teller and managed to get away with an undisclosed amount of money. As far as I could see, she has yet to be apprehended. So perhaps her disguise wasn't as stupid as it sounds because apparently it worked. Now, this might be my own judginess at work here, but when I read about the, quote, duct tape bandit, I automatically assumed that this had to have happened someplace in the South. I mean, I really had no idea. I could very well have been totally wrong, but I wasn't. It was in Kentucky, Ashland, Kentucky, as it were. A 24-year-old man named Casey Kazzy wrapped his head in duct tape and attempted to rob a liquor store in 2008. But the clerk must have passed his own judgment considering this guy was dumb enough to wrap his own head in duct tape because he did not comply with the robber's demands and proceeded to tackle him and held him until police arrived. The tape itself ended up coming off pretty easily because Casey Cassie was sweating profusely and he was ultimately sentenced to 10 years in prison for the stick-up and he managed to prove to the world that while duct tape can fix almost anything, it can't fix stupid. In 2016, a 25-year-old man named Alex Breezy of Baltimore, Maryland, had become somewhat disgruntled about that year's primary elections. So he broke into a TV station announcing that he had a bomb that he was ready to detonate. Now this particular young man, I'm not going to really poke fun at because it was eventually found that he could not be criminally responsible for his actions because he suffered from mental illness and he was eventually sent for treatment at a mental health facility. 
but he has made our list of memorable disguises because he walked into the TV station wearing a hedgehog onesie with a fake bomb attached to his body. The bomb, it turned out, was a red flotation vest covered with candy bars that were wrapped in foil, along with a computer motherboard attached to the whole thing. Law enforcement ended up shooting this guy, but fortunately, he survived. And going back to good old Florida, where Florida man never disappoints. In 2015, a man named Jacob Mercer also opted for a Halloween costume when he dressed up as Lord Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith. But this Vader left his lightsaber at home and brought his handgun instead when he robbed a convenience store in Jacksonville Beach. But the force was not enough to protect Vader from being taken out by a jar of salad dressing. The clerk who refused the robber's demands for money began to tussle with the Dark Lord and then ended up picking up the closest thing that he could, a jar of blue cheese dressing, and he threw it, hitting Darth right in the helmet, causing some pretty substantial injuries to his face based on the mugshot taken later that evening. The moral of the story here is Florida man might be the guy trying to rob a store dressed as Darth Vader, but the clerk behind the counter, you should never forget that he too is a Florida man in his own right. So you're probably thinking, wait a second, Roseanne, you just went over all these silly disguises, but when you started talking about MacArthur Wheeler and his two bank robberies, you specifically said that he wasn't wearing any disguise. And you're right, I did say that. He brazenly walked into the banks, bright and early, armed with a gun, nothing obscuring his face. But the reason why Wheeler manages to take the lead when it comes to ineptness among this motley crew of criminals is the fact that he didn't think that he needed a disguise. You see, he was in complete shock when three months later, police arrived at his front door with a warrant there to arrest him for the armed robberies. But as shocked as he was, the cops were equally as stunned and confused when the first thing MacArthur Wheeler said to them was, but I wore the juice. What? In the holy balls, does that mean? Well, like I said, it wasn't until July of 1995, three months after the pair of robberies in Pittsburgh, that the surveillance footage was broadcast on all the local news outlets. It only took an hour for an anonymous tipster to call in and identify the bank robber as MacArthur Wheeler. Once a positive ID was made, he was quickly taken into custody. But as I said, Wheeler was completely dumbfounded as to how in the world investigators were able to actually track him down. And police were equally as dumbfounded as how it was Wheeler was so shocked that they found him since he committed two bank robberies without any sort of disguise or mask. And they really wanted to know, how is it he decided to do that? What made him think to rob two banks with his face in full view? But once again, Wheeler began babbling something about wearing the juice, I wore the juice, and investigators were totally lost as to what it was the hell this guy was talking about. What juice? What are you talking about? What do you mean? 
And Wheeler told him, the lemon juice, I wore the lemon juice. It was definitely a head scratcher. So dreamers, you could probably see where this is going. But the thing here with MacArthur Wheeler is he didn't exactly come up with this fantastically laughable scheme on his own. And I don't know if that makes this any better or any worse, but the idea actually came from a friend of his, or so-called friend. If I had to hazard a guess, I'd say they probably didn't stay friends for very much longer after the bank robberies. So this friend told Wheeler that lemon juice could be used to achieve invisibility. Yes, dreamers, actual invisibility. Lemon juice can make you invisible. All you have to do is mix it with water and voila, you can have an actual invisibility potion. That's what his friend told him. The friend explained the process of the science experiment that I told you about when we first started getting into this discussion. He showed Wheeler how lemon juice could be used to make invisibility ink. So naturally, logic would dictate that if you were to rub lemon juice on your face, it can make you invisible too. Isn't that just simply amazing? Now to Wheeler's credit, he was a bit skeptical that this could actually work. So he would test it out on his own at home before he actually tried to pull off the real robberies. He went and got some lemons and squeezed some juice. Then he rubbed it all over his face. But instead of looking into a mirror to see if he was actually invisible, he decided to use a Polaroid camera to take a selfie. When the camera spit out the picture, he shook it, you know, like we used to do. And lo and behold, there was no image of him in the Polaroid. It was completely blank. So Wheeler was convinced that it actually worked. Why didn't he simply look at himself in a mirror to check his invisibility? It might have been because he couldn't see the lemon juice because it was stinging his eyes. I have no idea. And what exactly made Whaler think that rubbing the lemon juice only on his face would make his entire body invisible in the Polaroid? I guess more of his moronic logic. That's the only thing I could think of. Why did the Polaroid have no image in the picture at all? Because clearly MacArthur Whaler was just as incompetent at taking pictures as he was at robbing banks, choosing friends, and making life choices in general. Obviously, the Polaroid camera was used improperly, or he didn't know how to take a selfie and pointed the thing in the wrong direction. Somehow, it malfunctioned. But again, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say it was Wheeler that malfunctioned. So, convinced that this was his ticket to solving his financial problems, and I'm only assuming he has financial problems if he's resorting to robbing banks. So, the ticket to solving his problems was this invisibility juice. But his friend issued him a warning, a warning that he must heed or his plan would be foiled. Stay away from any and all sources of heat. Otherwise, the invisibility juice would become deactivated and your identity would be revealed to the world. So stay away from heat and you'll be okay. 
So before walking into each of those banks on the morning of April 19, 1995, MacArthur Wheeler rubbed lemon juice all over his face. He entered the bank, he brandished his gun and demanded money from the tellers. The tellers did later report that it appeared that there was something on Wheeler's face and it was clearly causing him problems because whatever it was was getting into his eyes and he could barely see and it was stinging him. He was blinking really rapidly and trying very hard to keep focused on what he was doing. After he was arrested and investigators were learning about the facts of this case and what Wheeler had done was coming to light, Investigators suspected perhaps that there was something wrong with their suspect. Maybe he was experiencing some kind of bad drug trip that led him to believe that he was invisible because that happens, right? But no, it turns out Wheeler was not tripping on drugs. There wasn't any mental illness going on. He was just a moron. So dreamers, what this case pretty much boils down to is that this was a complete and total failure when it comes to self-awareness. Being so blind as to what's going on that everyone around you is more clued in than you are. Now, it's not particularly easy to see and know and understand how the rest of the world perceives us. We can't really truly know how smart we seem to other people or how attractive we might look to other people, especially to others that we don't know. But it is possible to develop a strong sense of self-awareness over time as we get older and we mature. We just get better at understanding how the outside world perceives us. And this is what brings us to the hypothetical cognitive bias that I alluded to earlier. It's a theory that states that people who possess a low level of knowledge or ability tend to overestimate themselves and... The inverse to that is that people who possess a high level of knowledge or ability tend to underestimate themselves. And this all came out a few years later after Wheeler's robbery, when the details of what he had done caught the attention of a professor of psychology. It was particularly the fact that Wheeler actually believed that the lemon juice would make him invisible, apparently completely invisible since he saw proof of this in that Polaroid that came out completely blank. It was David Dunning whose attention was captured by this robbery. He was a social psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Michigan and then Cornell University. He recruited one of his graduate students at Cornell at the time, Justin Kruger, who would go on to be a social psychology professor at New York University Stern School of Business. Together, they wanted to try and figure out what exactly was going on here with Mr. MacArthur Wheeler. There just had to be something more happening here with Wheeler in order for him to achieve that level of inability to actually get what was going on. Dunning and Kruger hypothesized that while most people are generally pretty confident and have a favorable impression or conception of their own abilities, when it comes to different social and intellectual situations and arenas, that there are some individuals who erroneously make the assessment that their abilities are much better and higher than they actually are. They called it the illusion of confidence, but today it's named after these two who initiated the study and it's commonly referred to as the Dunning-Kruger effect. 
the cognitive bias that inflates one's own self-assessment. And in Wheeler's case, it's the reason why he was so confident about something so incredulous. How it was that he convinced himself that lemon juice would give him the power of invisibility. Obviously, a phenomenon that is fundamentally impossible. And dreamers, I say fundamentally impossible because there are researchers and engineers who have said that there is research out there that invisibility is possible on a certain level, but when it comes to invisibility on a real world human level, the answer is no, it's just not possible. We see things because light reflects off of an object, causing it to be visible to us, and there is just no way to suppress or scatter that light in order to make those objects invisible. Obviously, MacArthur Wheeler was not considering the concept of invisibility on a scientific level beyond some fun and easy science projects for kindergartners. To investigate this illusion of confidence, Dunning and Kruger carried out a series of experiments. One of them involved asking a group of undergraduate students a sequence of questions about topics such as grammar, logic, and jokes. They were questions where answers could be marked either correct or incorrect. It was like a test. Then they requested that each one of those students provide them with a guess as to how she or he scored on the test questions overall and how they think their score ranked in comparison to other undergraduate students who were also given the test. What they came to find was that the students who earned the lowest scores always overestimated how well they thought they did. And it wasn't just a slight overestimation. They overestimated themselves by a lot. In fact, those students who scored in the bottom 25th percentile estimated that they did better than 66% of the other students tested. This was Dunning and Kruger's idea of the illusion of confidence, and they believed it went beyond school and the classroom environment that this illusion carried over into a person's day-to-day life. So what they did was they went to a local firing range where they spoke to a group of gun enthusiasts and asked them some test-style questions about gun safety. And just like their previous findings, Dunning and Kruger found that those who scored low and answered very few of the questions correctly also way overestimated their knowledge and understanding when it came to guns and firearm safety. They also found the same phenomenon occurred even when it didn't pertain to actual factual knowledge, but it also extended out to a variety of abilities, the things that people were capable of doing rather than knowing. And they were able to demonstrate the same inflated assessment of a person's own capabilities. The example given in an article in Quartz.com was if you watched any sort of reality show competition, we will often observe the surprise and the feelings of shock and disbelief in some contestants who can't believe that they didn't make it when they were voted off by the judges. When these people display this level of incredulity and disbelief that they actually lost, it demonstrates how unaware they are when it comes to their abilities that they may have been deceived by their own illusion of confidence. And I've seen this a lot when I watch uh, auditions for shows like 
America's Got Talent or The X Factor or whatever, particularly when it comes to singers, there's a lot of them that really can't tell that they really can't sing. Is it normal for people to have an overinflated sense of how good they are at something or how much they know about a subject? Sure, it's not unusual. In fact, according to the same article in courts.com, as many as 80% of drivers would consider themselves to be above average when it comes to their skills behind the wheel, which is statistically not possible when we look at accident rates. And the trend is the same when it comes to how people would rank their popularity amongst friends, peers, or coworkers, as well as their intellectual abilities. But when you throw into the mix a person who is completely incompetent, like our friend here, MacArthur Wheeler, what happens is not only are they going to reach totally wrong conclusions and make disastrous life choices, but they will also be completely void of the ability to be cognizant of the mistakes that they've made or are going to make. In a study conducted over the course of one semester involving college students, the students who performed well were able to more accurately predict how they were going to perform on upcoming tests when they were given feedback about previous scores and how well they were doing. But those who performed the poorest and achieved the lowest scores had no ability to recognize their own poor performance even though they were told repeatedly that they were not doing well. Rather than being confused or bewildered by the fact that they were mistaken or wrong, incompetent individuals with little to no self-awareness would continue to insist that they were right. It is Darwin's notion that ignorance begets confidence. However, on the flip side of this, Dunning and Kruger found Interestingly enough, that people who functioned at a higher level of intelligence, they were also incapable of accurately assessing their own competence and aptitude. Just as students who regularly earned D's and F's overestimated their abilities, straight A students tended to underestimate theirs. In the study, Dunning and Kruger found that high-achieving students in the top percentile underestimate their own competence. They would make the assumption that since the cognitive tasks that they were asked to do were simple for them, that those same tasks must have been simple for everyone, if not more so. It's the inverse of the Dunning-Kruger effect. The main difference is, is that people who are competent have the ability to modify their self-assessments when they are given feedback about their performance. They have the ability to see it for what it is and accept it, while those who are incompetent, those who perform poorly, lack the ability to adjust their self-assessment down to a level that is more accurate and realistic. The article I referenced finished up by stating, and therein lies the key to not ending up like the witless bank robber. Sometimes we try things that lead to favorable outcomes, but other times, like the lemon juice idea, Our approaches are imperfect, irrational, inept, or just plain stupid. The trick is to not be fooled by illusions of superiority and learn to accurately reevaluate our competence. After all, as Confucius says, real knowledge is knowing the extent of one's ignorance. So at the time that Dunning and Kruger were making their findings, They largely went unchallenged when they published their article 
in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 1999, where they stated that their research showed that people who performed poorly tended to overestimate their abilities relative to others, and high performers tended to underestimate their abilities. That incompetent people lacked the tools needed to be able to tell the difference between people with strong abilities and people with weak abilities. And they come up short when it comes to cognitive skills. It's the very incompetence that leads them to make poor decisions and also prevents them from having the ability to recognize competence or lack thereof. In 2010, according to a blog by Tal Yarconi, a professor of psychology at the University of Texas, Austin, there appeared to have been a resurgence when it came to the media and the internet attention aimed at the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yarconi had said that this concept was being applied to business, that the best employees will perpetually be the most hard on themselves when it comes to self-assessment, while the least effective, lowest functioning employees will continually think that they are putting forth an excellent performance at work. Then Yarconi applied this to fake celebrities. And his example that he used was Spencer Pratt and Heidi Montag and pointed to them as a perfect example of the Dunning-Kruger effect at work. I personally don't know a whole bunch about this couple. I know the basics probably like a lot of you. I didn't watch The Hills, which was a reality show that debuted on May 31st, 2006 and ran until 2010. At that time, I was really busy working. I had a kid in about second grade. I was also working on my degree. So the 2000s kind of left me in the dust. But I do remember hearing a lot about Heidi in January of 2010 when she debuted her new look after she had undergone a laundry list of cosmetic surgery procedures that she had been wanting to have done. And if I remember correctly, she was heavily panned in the media and on the internet for the drastic change to her look that she had overdone it. Whatever. Everybody's a critic, right? That's really the only thing that I recall standing out about this couple. Even though their relationship has spanned about 15 years now, that's the only thing that really stood out in my memory. And that might explain why they were singled out as the perfect candidates for the Dunning-Kruger effect. So what Yarconi wrote was, Montag and Pratt are great examples of the Dunning-Kruger effect. A whole industry of assholes are making a living off of encouraging two attractive yet untalented people that they are actually genius auteurs, which in other words is artists. The bubble around them is so thick they may never escape it. At this point, all of America, at least those who know who they are, are in on the joke Yet the two people at the center of this tragedy are completely unaware. I would dare to say that in the 11 years since this blog article was written that Spencer and Heidi have had a bit of clarity, you know, time to contemplate their life and their career choices. I know that they've said that they've made a lot of mistakes. There are articles, a spattering of them where they express their regrets and they acknowledge those mistakes. And they've even hinted at the fact that they've run into financial issues. So maybe they've been able to sort of reach a certain amount of self-awareness about it all. But honestly, I don't think that we are 
all that aware of it ourselves because the media, for the most part, doesn't really pay much attention to them anymore. But it makes sense that they would end up struggling to reclaim some sort of relevance due to the fact that they were so blatantly unaware of how unremarkable and untalented they actually were. So yeah, this was a pretty good example of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yarconi did criticize Dunning and Kruger for never really providing any real support for their worldview, that their studies did not show categorically that incompetent people are more confident and arrogant than competent people. To me, it seems like a difficult thing to measure scientifically to begin with. After all, it is hypothetical. Yarconi does go into some long-winded psychobabble, which I don't think is really necessary for us to have a grasp here on our buddy, MacArthur Wheeler. The point of it all is that he was the one who inspired Dunning and Kruger to explore the illusion of competence to begin with. It was his wearing of the juice that sparked it all. Personally, I don't know if I believe MacArthur Wheeler was a low-performing, low-achieving individual who had an overinflated view of his overall competence. Thinking that you're smarter or more talented or more knowledgeable than you actually are feels different than what he was actually thinking. To me, his belief in invisibility juice is like believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Believing in the power of invisibility is like a kid who believes in superheroes or wizards. And eventually that kid grows up and understands that none of that is real. Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, superheroes and wizards are not a thing. And they're good with that because it was part of their childhood. Working in preschool, I found that toddlers tend to do things based on their perceptions, right? Like sometimes when a young toddler tries to wave at you, Sometimes they turn their hand towards themselves and they wave because that's what they see from their perspective when we wave at them. They see our hand waving, so they turn their hand inward and wave at themselves. It's what they see. It's their perception. Sometimes young children, particularly if they're being naughty and they get caught, they might cover their own eyes with their hands because it causes them to be unable to see. And it gives them the perception that since they can't see, we can't see them either or the naughty thing that they were caught doing. Eventually, toddlers figure things out and they will understand that you have to turn your hand outwards towards the person that you want to wave to. And just because you cover your eyes and can't see doesn't mean that you're invisible. And I tend to think that MacArthur Wheeler never really grew out of it. It's not to say that I would think Wheeler continued to believe in Santa Claus or superheroes, but rather he was naive and low-functioning enough to believe when told by another adult that if lemon juice can be used as invisibility ink, it can be used to make him invisible too. I don't think he would sit there and argue that he was right, that he was in fact invisible and everybody else was wrong. Personally, I think Wheeler would sit there and be unable to understand why. It didn't work. Ultimately, he was sentenced to 24 years in prison for his crimes. And that, dreamers, is number 200. 
I want to thank all of you for listening. All of you that have been with me from the beginning, those of you who are new to the show and working your way backwards and everyone in between. Thank you so much. I'm really proud of this body of work and here's to the next 200. Don't forget to look California Dreaming Up on Facebook, follow the page and join the discussion group. You can follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. Check out our Patreon where there are dozens of full length episodes. And I guess I should mention that while the show has mostly been a one case per episode style podcast, there are also a number of multi-part series if that's your thing too. It's a good mix and you can find those on both the regular show and on Patreon. Almost all Patreon episodes are available starting at $1 a month, which from what I've seen out there is one of the better deals around. I want to thank you again, everyone for listening. Thank you all for all of your support. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. Thank you.